0: For better or for worse, CITES is the global platform where governments get together and fret about whether or not the trade in wildlife products is threatening the survival of the species and then make decisions on whether to put trade barriers up, whether to limit the trade and require a government oversight of that trade. So why would the UK government unilaterally say, well, we're going to go beyond the CITES thing and just individually one country Um, do this, and think that's going to have an impact.
1: Profit-seeking enterprises are often portrayed as the arch nemesis of wildlife conservation, particularly in the developing world. We often hear the need to crack down on poaching, while the UK Parliament has been considering legislation to ban importing hunting trophies. But could restrictions on trade hurt people in developing economies? Or damaging wildlife conservation, the environment and the economy? Welcome back to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question. Today's question, is wildlife trade sustainable? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. France Voorhees, who is the director and co-founder of the African Wildlife Economy Institute at Stellenbosch University as well as a research visitor at the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit at Oxford University here in the UK. Francis has promoted sustainable development and conservation in various roles across Africa and Europe, while his research focuses on the benefits of unlocking the wildlife economy. Welcome to the podcast, Frank.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Let's start with this kind of broad question of what we're talking about here. What is the wildlife economy?
0: So the wildlife economy as a term is really new. It's been around just a few years. And one way to explain it is to say it's another way of describing what we used to call conservation, believe it or not. So back in 1980, there was a book published by the International Union for Conservation of Nature called the World Conservation Strategy. It actually was sort of the Sustainable Development Goals version zero. And there they defined conservation as the management of nature for sustainable human benefit in which sustainable utilization was a way in which you can serve nature. So originally we thought of conservation as using nature sustainably. Then about 1992, we we launched a new convention on um, biological diversity, which I'll, I'll mention again later. And in that convention, the government split out conservation and sustainable use. So conservation became more of a protectionist term, of conservation and protection. And this has to do with my government, the Americans in the negotiations. Said so conservation is what we do in our national parks, sustainable use is what we do in our forest reserves. So now how do we want to describe using nature to conserve nature? We're using the term wildlife economy. So basically an economy around accessing, using, Wild plants, wild animals, wild fish, whether that's for goods or for services. And so it's, it's a modern way of expressing conservation with us as a player, as a, as a, a central part of a, of a conservation activity.
1: So it seems in some ways to be almost like a philosophical difference. So it's, it's not saying nature is something that we simply look at, we don't, we're not part of. Uh, we don't engage with, we, we don't uh, try to use for, I suppose, economic advancement. Um, and that kind of, I suppose, relatively stale version of conservation that we often hear about, which is you, you basically, you know, things like the green belt, where you just say, well, you can't do anything in the green belt, you know, you, you're, you're not part of nature, you're not um, able to do any kind of development in it, you can't um, do any kind of hunting of animals, because that would um, impact the landscape. It kind of, I suppose, rejects that um, that version of a green philosophy and, and tries to make a green philosophy that it, I suppose aligns the incentives a bit better between sustainable use and economic development and protecting the environment and uh, wildlife?
0: Yep. and um, So you're right. So if you look at the, um, the language that's used in the... 2030 agenda for sustainable development, which the sustainable development goals are part of, which our government's not negotiated. They talk about living in harmony with nature, not living in harmony next to nature, but with nature. And they also talk about using marine resources sustainably, terrestrial resources sustainably. And so our governments understand this idea that the way to conserve is through use. So it isn't that we sort of put wildlife and nature over there on the other side of the fence. And then over here, what are we here with our factory farm chickens and so on? But we're actually embedded in nature. We live with nature. And so we're, our view in, in the African context is what you have now is a very big focus on large protected areas that were set up by the colonials in which people were kicked out of. And there's a, a, a pseudo wild nature without the human species in it, in which the only thing we really do is go look at it take pictures of it, and it sort of sits there. And what we're saying is that, first of all, that's only, what, 10%, 15% of the landscape at best, but even that, that doesn't bring in enough economy to, to maintain those areas. But outside of those areas, in the other 90%, 85 90% of the continent, why not look at how we can actually integrate our livelihoods, our lifestyles, our, our society, with the wild resources that we live with, the animals, the plants, the birds, the fish, and so on.
1: Do you have any kind of, uh, I suppose, examples of of what you're envisaging here, where you do have this kind of effective use, but in a sustainable way of of the natural environment?
0: Okay, so this is a a strong generalisation, but it's one way to sort of... um, I'm overstating both cases, but it's one way to sort of look at it. In the 1970s, in Kenya, they outlawed the use of wild mammals. People often say they banned hunting, but it was more than banning hunting. They also banned the, the venison industry, the, the wild game meat industry. So since 1977, when there was banned, the wildlife mammal population, not the grasses or the fish, but the wild mammal population has declined 70% in the country, so it's gone. But wow. The biomass on the, on the savannas has gone up, but now their biomass is goats, camels, sheep, cattle and so that biomass could be holding kudu, wildebeest, impala but you're not allowed to do anything with those animals except take pictures of them. So in Kenya if you were, if you own a piece of land and you've got a goat and you've got an impala, the goat you can breed, you can sell, you can milk, the impala you can just, if you have an iPhone, you can take out your iPhone and take a picture of it. That's it. So which one do you want on your farm? You want the goat. If that impel is actually a lion, he's going to eat your goat, so you get rid of him right away. If it's an elephant, it's going to trash your whole farm, so you get rid of that. So the population's gone like that. Flip it to South Africa, in the 1960s in South Africa, there were about 600,000 wild mammals in the country. Now there's about 18 million in South Africa, and a lot of that, most of that is outside of the national parks. It's in what are called wildlife ranches. Now they're not ideal in the sense that they're fenced areas and purists would want to get those fences down, but because they're able to utilize those resources, those wild resources, many, many landowners have moved from crop farming and cattle ranching to wildlife ranching. And now there are millions and millions of lions and kudu and everything in the country that weren't there back in the 60s. So Kenya, it's gone like this with no use. South Africa was used. Wildlife stocks have increased massively.
1: I mean, it almost seems like a kind of like a coasting property rights story in many respects, which is if you you allocate kind of value, um, there is an incentive to protect whatever the wildlife is. Whilst if you, what you've effectively done by the sounds of it in in the Kenyan case there is just kind of left these in the commons and you can't touch it. And therefore there's no incentive on anyone to, to bother with sustainability of that wildlife.
0: And what happens is then the incentive is to do something else with the landscape. So one of the outcries recently in Kenya is some landowner near the Amboseli National Park, which is the one at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro with the beautiful photographs has, put in an avocado farm and there used to be a wildlife corridor between Amboseli and Nairobi National Park and the animals would move back and forth well you own the land these animals back and forth you can't make any money out of them fence the land and put, plant avocados some people are saying, oh that's wrong with it. that's the livelihood so you've had a lot of conversion of land in places like Kenya away from wildlife estates so what we're saying in our interest is to say if we want to rewild Africa we need to make the wilds resources on their landscape, part of the economy and part of society, if you will.
1: And and it it seems like from a development perspective, what you need is, uh, I suppose, a a resource that people can, in a sense, exploit for economic purposes while keeping it sustainable. So if, if you're saying to people, you've got this natural resource, but you can't actually Hunt that resource. It, it seems like that's a way to lay people in poverty, rather than allowing kind of some sort of economic development, economic activity.
0: We have a couple of things, and the whole issue of property rights is an interesting one. I mean, is it is it ownership or is it use rights? And in many ways, it can be use rights. It doesn't mean that you have to own the wildebeest, but you have to have some use right to it. So here in the United Kingdom, your landowner has a use right to the wild deer on their land. They can harvest that deer. Do they really own it? I'm not sure they own it, but they do get to harvest it. And and there is customs there. And if you wanted to go as a hunter onto somebody's land, you'd have to get permission from them. I don't think you get permission from Whitehall. You get permission from the landowner. So the landowner has some type of use rights, but I'm not sure they actually own it per se, but they do have some type of ownership use regime around it. In, In South Africa, what they did in the early 90s is they passed a game Theft Act that said if the animals are on your property and secured by you, which basically means fenced, they're yours, and so fencing has become a way that they actually do own the the wildlife in South Africa, and they do buy and sell them. There's auction, there was an auction last weekend. People, if you want if you want rhinos, you can go buy rhinos. You can buy any elephants don't. There's not much of a market for them because you need a big piece of property for them. But you can buy lion, you can buy kudu, you can buy wildebeest, and so on. So there's a whole market. For wild animals in southern Africa, is that be, turning it into livestock? Well, it's a continuum. It's a question. It's a bit like free-range chickens; they're not wild, but they're not battery chickens either. So, some of the wildlife is more free-range than wild, but you know it's there. It's not disappeared. So, the use rights is important. Um, markets access to markets is important. Being able to put products in to the market. So, in Kenya, what you have is um, the. You could get a use right, but it comes from the Kenya Wildlife Services, which is a parastatal, which is like your quangos here in this country, which is separate from the government. They have a monopoly over all the wildlife. Back in the 90s, they were allocating that certain people could harvest their wildlife and then went into restaurants in the city in Nairobi into one famous one, the carnivore, where you could get game meat and all the tourists went there. But they didn't allow the local people legally. So only the elites in the city could get the game meat, not the rural people. So now you have another problem. If you have these resources there, whether it's animals or plant resources, and you have laws that say people can't. Um, harvest them, but people want to harvest them, they want to feed their families, they want medicinal, they want fuel wood and so on. And if they harvest them, now they're criminalized, so now they're called poachers. And then we say we want to stop the poachers, well, is the problem poaching or is the problem that people aren't empowered to use their resources?
1: So, so I think uh, that the kind of instinctive criticism to a lot of what you're talking about is people say, oh, it's poaching, um, poaching will lead to deplete, depletion of natural resources, you have like." effectively a loss of these wild animals, that there's a risk that they'll be overused and lead to extinction. What would you say to those kind of concerns?
0: Well, this is where you do want to get a regime going where there are Use rights associated with responsible management. I mean, people here in this country that have a a sheep farm don't wipe out all the sheep in one season. They manage the flock. They they take a certain amount out every year. You can do the same. And and in fact, in the South African wildlife ranches that are privatized, that's what they do. And the the offtake is about thirty percent, roughly. Some species a little more, some a little less. But every year you can take an offtake about thirty. They don't take one hundred percent. They take thirty. So. The, one of the ways is to get a use-right regime that is enforceable. Now, how do you how do you assure that that's going to happen? You can have government regulation if you want, and you can have government licensing and quotas and so on. But also, the, and what we're very interested in, which is much more market-based, is voluntary standards. So that you can actually, and some of these exist already, for, especially in the plant world, you can have a voluntary standard that can help. The landowner, in order to get the standard, comply with a management regime that has sustainable offtake and inclusive and equitable. You have the social side. And then you can also then assure your stakeholders so that they buy the product, they know that this product is not a a uh, road to extinction. This product has been responsibly harvested. And there's a whole potential for the use of voluntary standards in Africa to enable landowners then to into offtake, whether it's plants or animals, for whatever, for food, for medicine, what have you.
1: So, so is that kind of almost kind of an ostrom, Eleanor Ostrom? That's kind of local community bottom-up approach? Is that where the standards come from, or is that kind of like international standards-setting organizations that people sign up to, or is it a bit of a mixture of... of I I
0: think there's a need for it to be more international standards because if we want to have a wildlife economy that's actually going to grow and create livelihoods, it has to be an international economy. These wildlife products have to get into global value chains. So the one I can give you an example of that is up and running is the fair-wild standard. Fair is for the community or the people side, the harvester side, and the wild is the conservation side and the fair world standard actually looks at three things it looks at how is the harvesting regime socially responsible and how is it environmentally responsible and thirdly business practice is the business ethical does it report does it have um, transparency and public accountability and so on and then that standard ends up on on products like Pucketees here in, in the United Kingdom um, it ends up in uh, um, Cosmetics, um, um, perfumes, like the use of uh, frankincense and so on, and so by having an international standard. And Fairwild is actually it's a it's a Swiss foundation, but most of the staff is here in the UK. Um, that means that somebody could produce a baobab product in Zimbabwe and that could be exported elsewhere on the continent or it could be exported to Europe or North America or whatever, and that allows their wildlife harmister to join global value chains and get a better return on their on their effort. So yeah, community's fine, but we really want to have internationally recognized standards and build this economy and these products can be exported. So what we should be getting I'm on the meat side, more things. We should be getting fresh venison from Africa in the restaurants here, which we don't.
1: In, indeed, like we uh, talk about trying to get meat from Australia, well, cow meat from Australia and uh, lamb from New Zealand, why not indeed venison from all sorts of parts of Africa? And 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 you've
0: got, so if you take from the savannas of Africa, which is one of the major ecosystems on the planet, going right down to Durban and the south, all the way up to Tripoli, you could conceivably rewild that area, bring back the kudu, the impeller, the wildebeest, and you've got this whole array of, if you will, organic, climate-resilient, disease-resilient, um, efficient in the sense that they convert grass to meat much quicker than a cow that could be on that landscape and you could imagine Africa being a major exporter of meat, of protein for the planet.
1: And, and tell me, are there, what, are, what is the barrier to that? Are, are there barriers on the UK end? Do, do we put excessive tariffs on those kind of imports? Do we not recognize the safety of those kind of either wild or not wild meats? Or is it, is it really domestic issues within African countries? I
0: think it's more domestic than it is. Um, for example, we've been in long discussions with an old German uh, food industry guy in Johannesburg, and he wants to land fresh venison in Germany. No problem on the European Union side, except the European Union wants to know that when the animal was harvested and had a proper veterinary sign-off. The problem is, is if you go out and harvest game, it's, it's going to be a, a bush um, abattoir because you're out in the field. The vet has to come out. This is in South Africa. It's in a government vet, and they don't show up. They're working from home, like everywhere else, so they don't show up. So then he can't get the certificate and he can't export. So there's no problem landing in Frankfurt. The problem is getting it out of South Africa because the institutions aren't in place there. Another problem that you have in Africa, and this is why we're really excited about the African continental free trade area as a platform for the wildlife economy, is that one doesn't need to export game meat from Namibia to Germany or from South Africa to the UK they could be exporting that gay meat to Nigeria, to Kenya, to mm. Tanzania. So there's a huge economy now in Africa. So Africa is about a billion people say about like India, about like China, of which it's got about 300 million that are middle class people and it's got a lot of poor people still like India and China. But there's a big middle class economy and the potential under the African Continental free trade area to actually open up the export of of meat products, of, of plant products, wild plant products, plus the ecotourism and so on is massive. And so it's just getting the domestic legislation in, in place, reducing the non-tariff barriers to trade on, along the continent. So our focus is primarily right now on promoting the wildlife economy in the African economy and then let it expand globally.
1: And you mentioned tourism there as another part of it. There, there has been a lot of concern in the UK context about um, trophy hunting as a, a kind of substantive wildlife conservation problem, um, it, it seems to have been thrown into the um, back grass at the moment. But there's this pr- legislation that was introduced in Parliament to ban imports of, of items. I mean, wh- what do you make of that attempt as a conservation approach?
0: Well, I thought it was it was really odd. It, it, it from f- very odd that the UK would want to li- unilaterally ban the imports of trophies from a particular list of species, which, by the way, comes from Brussels, not from London, because mm-hmm. they still are linked to the um, the Brussels list, but that's another story, where um, the UK is a member of CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. And for better or for worse, CITES is the global platform where governments get together and fret about whether or not the trade in wildlife products is threatening the survival of the species and then make decisions on whether to put barrier, trade barriers up, whether to limit the trade and require a government oversight of that trade. So why would the UK government unilaterally say, well, we don't, we're gonna go beyond the CITES thing and just individually one country um, do this and think that's gonna have an impact and it's not—it's not a multilateral decision. It, it wasn't engaging with the exporting countries. I know in this case that a number of the Southern African countries made representation here, and it was this. I thought the whole process was completely mad. It was very neo-colonial in a way. It was hmm. the Europeans, uh, the Brits, saying, "We think we know what's better for Africans. We're going to tell them that they can't export their trophies to our country."
1: So, so I suppose the underlying—I went there—is that you can. Sustainably, to some extent, have tourists coming in, um, uh, effectively doing some kind of hunting and then taking those trophies back with them. That's not necessarily intrinsically an unsustainable practice. Not
0: intrinsically. I mean, obviously, if if there's fifty uh, lions in country, act say Malawi, and you bring in hunters in one month and kill all fifty lions, they're gone. But then that's on the onus of the. Of the country there to manage its stock and do quotas and all of them do and they have quotas and, and so on and yes there's, there's places where there's slippages and there's mistakes and there is here too but it's and it's not a big off take I mean um, trophy hunting is is it's, you know, it's a bunch of old fat white guys going to Africa and shooting elephants. So what? I mean, it isn't a huge industry. It's it's okay. I, I think they and it does do its, its bit. But again, it's just a piece of the puzzle. So you you've got the trophy hunting, but you also have fishing. So you take a country like Kenya, which is interesting. They outlawed trophy hunting or hunting in general in the 70s for mammals. But they still trophy fish. And you can go to Kenya and go on a trophy safari in the Indian Ocean or in Lake Victoria, catch a big giant fish, a marlin, and bring it back and stuff it and put it over your fireplace. So Kenya, which is opposed to hunting impala, allow you to hunt fish. And it's, and it's there. You can go on the website and book a safari right now, a, a consumptive safari. So somehow the fish, it's okay to kill them, but you can't. So you know and and it's it's a piece of their economy i don't think it should be but running the economy just on whether it's consumptive trophy hunting or on photographic tourism is pretty tough to run an economy just on tourism um, we think that the landscape it would be better to have a sort of diversity of products on the landscape and giving uh, give you an example of how we think about it so we're at Stellenbosch university which is Near Cape Town, it's surrounded by the wine industry, and we look at the. If you haven't been there, definitely, definitely a place to I'm go. I'm going
1: going next year. I'm very excited to visit.
0: So the wine economy around Stellenbosch is absolutely amazing. It's a whole mosaic of small, medium enterprises, and they um, you you, you know you, you don't just look at the stuff; you also drink it. So there's the use, the sustainable <laughs> use. You, um, you've got restaurants, you've got walking trails, you've got um, boss protection programs, you've got cheeses, you've got olive oils, Um, There's a whole mosaic of enterprise around that. That's sort of our vision for the wildlife economy. Go into an estate, a wilderness area and you'll have wild fruits and wild um, medicines and wild uh, cosmetics and wild meats and then you'll have hiking trails and then you might have a little bit of sport fishing and you have this whole mosaic of enterprises using what's natural in the environment and not sort of cutting it all down and making a maize field and making a cattle ranch. Use the stuff that's there.
1: I suppose my, my kind of final thought is, is there something we can learn from the kind of wildlife conservation work that you've been doing in Africa and we could even bring back to the UK as a, as a policy approach? Uh, are there are there things that I suppose we're, we're doing that poorly in the West in terms of the way we deal with wildlife and conservation um, that, that could be adapted um, and changed?
0: Well, I think what you've got here is you've got a really interesting rewilding movement going on in Europe and in, and in the UK, and it's not doesn't have an economic element to it. And so people are just rewilding, like you said earlier, just letting it go. But I think if you could combine what's already done with the harvesting that you do have, you harvest nettles in this country, you harvest uh, venison, with rewilding, you could see a resurgence of wild landscapes that are also economically powerful and create rural jobs and create products for communities and so on. So I think it's sort of putting together what's already there in the economic use in this country with the rewilding, you could have this win-win situation on the continent. Well, here.
1: thank you very much, Dr. Frank Rahiz from the African Wildlife Economy Institute. It's been an absolutely fascinating eye-opening discussion, a a topic that isn't talked about anywhere near enough and and I'm sure will be of much interest. If you are enjoying the IEA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. And if you'd like to learn more about the IEA's work, just visit iea.org.uk.